اللهم وفقنا توفيق بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله اللهم اللهم وفقنا توفيق الصالحين وارحمنا رحمة المرحومين وتقبل منا أعمالنا يا رب العالمين اللهم افتح علينا حكمتك وانشر علينا رحمتك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وقرب زدنا علما اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وصلي اللهم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا Bismillah. So, طيب القرافي he said لا لا يحل للمفتي أن يفتي أحد بالطراقي حتى يعلم أنه من برد ذلك العرف الذي ترتبت الفتى عليه لإن كان من برد آخر أفتاه باعتبار حال برده وقال وهذه القاعدة في جميع الأحكام كالنقود والسكوك في المعاملات والمنافع في الإيجارات والأيمان والوصايا والنظور في الإطلاقات قال وقد غفل عن هذا كثير من الفقهاء وجدوا الأئمة الأولى سطروا في كتبهم فتاوى بناء على عوائدهم فأفتى هؤلاء المتأخرون بها وقد زالت تلك العوائد فكانوا مخطئين خارقين الإجماع فإن الفتية بالحكم المبني على مدرك بعد زوال مدركه خلاف الإجماع It's a really important قاعدة Imam Al-Qarafi says in his um, 60, uh, first, 160 uh, first farq, he wrote a book called Furuq, which is one of the most important books uh, written uh, in, in, uh, in the area of usul and al-qawaid al-fiqhiyah. Because what he does, he clarifies that there are many things that, that one of the things that in, in, in logic... You, you, you build on premises and you move uh, to a conclusion. Uh, the famous syllogism uh, form, and you have different ones, categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive. Um, these syllogisms are ways in which we determine if something's sound or not. Because you have 64 possible syllogisms, only 16 of them are actually accurate. And you can... You can if you learn how to reduce an argument to a syllogism, you can determine whether it's a sound argument or not. I mean, this is one of the benefits of, of learning logic. But what, what very often people do is they do what's called qiyas ma'wujud fariq. 
It's making an analogical, uh, reasoning analogically, but there's a difference in, in, uh, that makes it different. Let me give you one example. Many people say, why is it that we can determine the prayer times by calendar and we can't determine the, the moon uh, by calendar, right? Because we all use these prayer schedules. We go on to, uh, to uh, you know, ipray.com or something, and we look the city we're in, and we click it on, and which is a bid'ah, clearly. No sahabi did that. Um, and, 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 and yet, people say, well, if we do that with the prayer time, and nobody seems to have an objection, why can't we do that with the moon times? Well, part of the reason is because the, first of all, there's no ishtihad with the wujud and nas. So there's a fariq. There's, there's, the Quran says, إِنَّ الصَّرَاتَ كَانَتْ عَلَى كِتَابًا Like the prayer is fixed times. And they don't change. You can go, you can look at the prayer a hundred years from now, and it's not going to change. It might change in nanoseconds if you're an a astronomer uh, because of uh, the Earth's spin or something like that changing. But it's not going to change. Whereas the moon, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, يَسْأَلُونَ عَنَ الْإِهِلَّةِ قُلْ هِيَ مَوَاقِيتُ لِلنَّاسِ Right? They're, they're ways of timekeeping for people, but it doesn't have the exactitude of the prayer time. And that's why in the hadith, صُومُوا لِرُؤْيَتِهِ وَأَفْطِرُوا لِرُؤْيَتِهِ وَإِنْ غُمَّ عَلَيْكُمْ أَوْ أُغْمِيَ عَلَيْكُمْ أَوْ غُمِيَ عَلَيْكُمْ أَوْ عُمِيَ عَلَيْكُمْ They all came down in different uh, narrations. Umi alaykum means it, you can't see it. It's, it's completely hidden from your sight. Which, if it's, if it's under the dungeon limit, this French astronomer determined clearly that the, the, the moon cannot be seen. There's no reflective light if it's lower than, than seven degrees. Even with, a, with a, 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 a telescope, unless you had some type of filter on it, Right, that enabled you to see, but it doesn't reflect light below the dungeon limit. There's difference of opinion of why they, they, it doesn't. He thought it was because of the surface of the moon that it was so rough that the light uh, didn't reflect off of it. Other people say it's just, it's the atmospheric, uh, the, the light's too bright from the sun. Anyway, you can't see it. So it could, umi alaykum. The hadith says, faqduru lahu aw faqdiru lahu. There's two riwayah. Faqduru lahu is, is, you know, uh, calculate. That hadith is called mujmal. Because that could mean different things. But there's another hadith which is called mubayyan. Because in usul you have mujmal, which is, it's not as clear. Mubayyan clarifies it. So the other hadith, akmilul iddata thalathina, complete 30 days, if, if it's hidden from you. Or if cloud, is cloud, so if it's cloudy and you can't see it, it's blind, it's under the dungeon limit, you can't see it. So, uh, so do that. So, that, so Imam al-Qarafi actually deals with this issue in his furuq. 
he, he explains why, and he was an astronomer that knew that you could actually calculate the, the, the new moon. This is not new science. People have calculated new moons for millennia, literally. I mean, the Babylonians were doing this. It's not new science. The Fatimids actually believe they, 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 during the Fatimid rule in, in Egypt and Tunis and, uh, and Libya, the Fatimids uh, had uh, moon began scientifically because they believed that you should use science, mathematics enables us to do this, and, and therefore we do it. So there is a period of time when a, a deviant sect actually did use calculations, and all of the ulama were against it. And it wasn't that they didn't think that, that it was possible. They knew it was possible to calculate the new moon. But they said clearly, this is about ru'ya, and it's not about calculation. So we can calculate the prayer times, but we can't calculate. So he wrote this book to show you the differences and, and how these differences will affect ruling. So one of the things he said is that it's not permissible for a mufti to give a fatwa, for instance, about talaq, until he, he, it's known that he's from that place, he knows the urf of the place. So in other words, he knows the customs of the people. Like for instance, you could say, you know what, we're through. It's over. And you mean divorce. If that's your intention, that's actually a type of divorce by urf. You don't have to say, anti taliq, you are divorced. You can just say, it's over. It's over, baby, you're out of here. <laughs> no. Call your parents. <laughs> so so that, that, that's a type of divorce, if that was the intention. So he has to know what the urf is. Because he can't give a fatwa unless he knows that. If he's in another land, he can only give a fatwa based on what happens in his land. This is really important. Because we get people coming from, for instance, Arabia. They come to the United States and people ask them questions. They don't know anything about the urf of the country. They don't know the problems of the people in that country. It has to be somebody that really understands that. They should at least know a foreign language. You know, they should know a European language, be reading uh, in, 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 uh, in that area so they can understand the issues. And then he says, this, this applies to all legal rulings, whether they're uh, monetary rulings, uh, whether they're related to uh, rental problems and the benefits of that, or oaths, whether they're related to bequests or vows, right? All of these. And he says, this is something many fuqaha, many jurists are ignorant of. They, they neglect this meaning. This is one of our greatest Usuli scholars. And he's saying the fuqaha get this wrong. So just because somebody is a faqih or an alim doesn't mean that they're, you know, they've always got it right. And, and he says that, they find the early imams who they trust a lot, they wrote in their books fatawa based on their circumstances and their uh, awa'id, their, their cultural norms, their, 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 their uh, traditions. So the people come later, they read those old fatwas and they give responses 
from books that were written a thousand years ago to apply to today. And, and he says, This is wrong. They, and they have broken with the ijma'. Because a fatwa that's based on something after that thing is gone is no longer applicable. And, and he says, this is the ijma'. In other words, the illa, it, the hukum, al-hukmu yaduru ma'al-illa. Right? It, a, a, a legal ruling has to do with the rationale behind it. So if the rationale is gone, there's no more purpose of the legal ruling. In fatwas, it's a really important point. And, and, and it's a very common uh, mistake. So, uh, and a, a good example of that is, uh, you know, women who become Muslim in non-Muslim lands, and their husbands aren't Muslim, but their husbands in some cases, even encourage them. And so this idea that you give a fatwa based on uh, somebody who's, you know, in a, in a Muslim country, what they would say, and you apply it to that same circumstance, it's not, that they're not compatible. And part of this is just fiqh al-waqa. You know, it's just, it's the fiqh of reality, right? As opposed to fiction, right? So he says like 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 for instance in the books of the Malikiyah, they used to use these words like you know uh, the the you know the the khaliya that I have nothing to do with you or ana you know it's over like that and Imam Malik said that these were they, they counted for three divorces because they were, they were mabtuta, they were like final. He says that's no longer applicable. We don't, we, we can't base it on that. Most of the Malikis today, he's talking about in his place, they use these old fatwas and they say this is three divorces. And he said, based on a custom that, uh, customary practice in his time that's no longer applicable. And he says, uh, These awa'id are over, these customs. Nobody today uses these words to mean that. وَلَهُ أَيْضًا فِي الْفَرْقَ and then what he calls what's permissible to honor people. There are two types. Things that our sharia says, like spreading uh, greeting. Assalamu alaikum. That's part of our urf. The Muslims, we customarily, if we meet, we, we say assalamu alaikum. And then, and then uh, it's mandub to do that. But it's wajib to reply. So you have, somebody has to reply, at least one person in the group. But it's recommended, this is the, the sharia is recommending that we do this. But if somebody does it, you have to reply because if you don't, it's animosity you're expressing. It, he could take it wrong and think that, you know what, you don't want peace for me, I want peace for you, you don't want, okay, then get, here's war. Right? <laughs> So what he says, لأنه لم يكن أسباب اعتباره بلزومه موجودة حينئذ 
وتجددت في عصرنا فتعين فعله لتجدد لتجدد اسبابه كانواع المخاطبات للملوك واولي الرفعه من العظماء this so many people misunderstand this today like for instance صاحب السمو there's people that will take umbrage and say اعوذ بالله يا اخي ليش تقول صاحب السمو هو مو سامي ولا هو عالي ولا شيء هذا سافل no he's a hakim and the urf is to call him sahib al-samu right or sa'ada or ma'ali al-wazir this is a'raf and if you don't do them you're breaking the a'raf and it's offensive and so you're creating problems but what did the prophet write to the romans ila azim ar-rom the great one of rome the prophet sallallahu great with who with his people So the Prophet was speaking to him as he was spoken to him. He didn't, he didn't say, Ya Haqir, Ya Kafir. You know, really, he didn't say that. You know, Ya Ahmaq, La Tu'min Billah. You know, no. He said, Ila Azim Ar-Rum. To the Great One of Rome. That's a, that's a name of Allah, Al-Azim. So he's saying that these things like ulil rif'a min al-'udama wa al-qiyam lil-ikram getting up to honor somebody this is all urf. The Prophet ﷺ said man ahabba right the one an yatamathal lahu an-nas bil-qiyam you know the one who wants people to get up for him that's another thing and he said la tuqumu kama yaqum al-'ajm don't get up like the ajm get up he's talking to the arabs in other words look this isn't your urf so don't take somebody else's urf But he didn't tell them they can't do that. He said they do that. That's their urf. That's not the urf of the Arabs. Don't take another urf. Because humility is better. Right? But if the ajim do something, as long as they don't do it out of ibadah or something like that, khalas, it's their way they show ihtiram. There are things that the Arabs didn't do that it's sunnah for the Arabs not to do. And there's things that the ajam, uh, it's sunnah, that they do things that the Arabs did. Not because it's an Arabian sunnah, but because the Prophet ﷺ did it as a practice. For instance, he ate with his hand. You, you can eat with a fork or a spoon. There's nothing that says you can't eat with a fork or a spoon. You can do that. But, but the Prophet ate with his hand. Now, if you eat with your hand, the sunnah is to use three fingers, not your whole hand. Three things. That's the sunnah. And to use your right hand. So, if you're going to eat with your hand, then you should do it the way the Prophet ﷺ did it. It's encouraged to do that. And it would be makroon not to do that. وَهَذَا كُلُّهُ وَنَحْوُ مِنَ الْأُمُورَ الْعَادِيَةِ These are customary affairs, matters. لَمْ تَكُنْ فِي السَّلَفِ وَنَحْنُ وَدِيَوْنَ نَفْعَلُهَا Today we do it. The self didn't do it. وَذَلِكَ جَائِزٌ مَأْمُورٌ بِهِ وَإِن كَانَ بِدْعَةً These things are permissible even if they didn't, he means بِدْعَةً لَغَوِيَةً wasn't in the, the, a practice of the, the self. وَلَقَدْ حَضَرْتُ عَنْدْ عِزَّ الدِّينِ إِبْنْ عَبْدِ السَّلَامِ وَكَانَ مِنْ أَعْيَانَ الْعُلَمَاءُ وَأُولِ الْجِدِّ فِي الدِّينِ So he's of the maqam of jid in the religion, this highest maqam. Izzuddin ibn Abd al-Salam. And this is Imam al-Qarafi speaking, right? He's writing this. 
الدين he followed the book and the sunnah he could care less about the kings let alone others in other words he, he wasn't afraid of king he would t- speak the truth say the truth he's famous for that his moqif in front of the ruler He's famous for that. So he's saying he didn't care about the kings, let alone other people. So he's not saying this because he was worried or something like that. لا تأخذوا في الله لومة لائم He didn't worry concerning God. He didn't worry about other people blaming him. He would speak the truth and he could care less what other people thought. فَقُدِّمَ لَهُ سؤال. A question was asked of him. فِي الْقِيَامِ الَّذِي أَحْدَثُهُ أَهْلُ زَمَانِنَا About getting up, the way people of our time get up. This wasn't amongst the salaf. Is it prohibited because the Prophet didn't do it? فقال قال رسول الله لا تباغضوا ولا تقاطعوا ولا تدابروا Didn't the Prophet say don't hate one another? Don't cut off ties with one another? Don't turn your backs on one another? وترك القيام في هذا الوقت يفضي وترك القيام في هذا الوقت يفضي للمقاطعة والمدابرة فلو قيل بوجوبه ما كان بعيدا and if you didn't do this today it would lead to people never talking to you again and so it's not far-fetched to say it's an obligation to stand this is Izzuddin ibn Absalam it's not far-fetched to say it's an obligation to stand because the ulfa and the unity of the Muslims is much more important. And this is why he said that sometimes leaving a sunnah, if it's going to lead to something worse, would be the sunnah in that situation. So things happen with people and then the responses come based on that. And this is one of the reasons why the Prophet said, my death is good for you. Because تحدثون فيحدث لكم You do things and then Allah responds. So when I die, he's cut off. So this doesn't get too overwhelming for you. Right? Because it's a rahmah to have أصل الأشياء إباحة If there were too many rules, we would get overwhelmed. <clears throat> وهذا بشرط أن لا تستبيح محرما ولا تترك واجبا. But this is condition, conditional upon neither making what is haram permissible nor leaving what is an obligation. And this is really important because one of the things that we have to be very careful about in our religion, because this is an age where <clears throat> the Abrahamic faiths are breaking down what the occultists call the age of Horus, the one-eyed one. Uh, that one of the, the really sinister occultists of the early 20th century, who died in 1947, and he's very popular amongst artists and things like that, he said that, the, uh, that we are entering into this age of Horus. You know, they call it the age of Aquarius, and what preceded us was the age of Pisces. And, and that was the age of, of Isis, interestingly enough. And, and, and Isis uh, is, the, uh, is this Egyptian god that imposes this uh, patriarchal rule. 
and treats us like children. And we have to follow them and, and, and follow these rules. And if we break these rules, we go outside of this, uh, this uh, patriarchal uh, father God. But now the age of Horus is coming, who's the son. So it's the age of the child. And the child is free to do what it wants. So the only real law now is do whatever you want, right? Do whatever you want. And, and as long as you don't hurt anybody, you can hurt yourself. And obviously you can hurt somebody else if it's consensual, but, but you don't hurt anybody intentionally, right? So this is the idea. So we have to be very careful that we do not change our religion because of the zeitgeist. So there's people that will say, what's wrong with this? Love wins, right? No, there's certain things our religion is very clear about. And one of the, the most important things one of my teachers told me, Sheikh Bashir al-Shakfa, he's a great um, scholar from Syria. Uh, a really brilliant faqih. Um, one of the things that he told me, he said, in America, just tell them, the Muslims there, whatever they do, don't make the haram halal. He said, because as long as, he said, in this religion, no matter what you do, the door of tawbah is open to you. But once you make the haram halal, the door closes. It closes. فَلَوْ كَانَ الْمَلِكُ لَا يَرْضَ مِنَّا إِلَّا بِمَعْصِيَةً لَمْ يَحِلَّ لَنَا أَنْ نُوَادَّهُ بِذَلِكَ وَإِنَّمَا هَذِهِ أُمُورٌ لَوْلَا هَذِهِ الْأَسْبَابًا مُتَجَدِّدَةُ كَانَتْ مَكْرُوهَةً مِنْ غَيْرِ تَحْرِيمٍ فَلَمَّا تَجَدَّدَتْ هَذِهِ الْأَسْبَابِ صَارَتْ تَرْكُهَا يُجِبُ الْمُقَاطَعَةَ الْمُحَرَّمَةَ this is really interesting. So he says, so if the king is, it doesn't accept that, right? If, if the king is demanding a, something that is prohibited from us, we can't do it. So, these are matters that the worst we can say about them is they're makruha. Had it not been for the circumstances changing. And we, min ghayri tahrim, they're not haram. فَلَمَّا تَجَدِّدَتْ هَذِي الْأَسْبَابِ صَارَ تَرْكُهَا يُجِبَ الْمُقَاطَعَةِ But because they've become the norm of the people, leaving them would lead to uh, strife in the society. And for this reason, the rule is, إِذَا تَعَارَضَ الْمَكْرُوهُ وَالْمُحَرَّمُ when, when there's a, a choice between, a conflict between what's haram and what's makruh, you cut off the bab of haram. And that's why the makruh in this situation becomes accepted to do it. And, and qiyam falls under the five, it can be wajib, it can be uh, mandub, it can be mubah, it can be makruh, and it can be haram. So it, it falls under these guys. And this is for the Usuri scholars to determine. So let's go back to what uh, I've gotten out of. You know, like, I, he, he went on this whole discourse. He, he, remember, he began this about the highest maqam. And he took us through this thing to show us 
that despite the, this importance, we have to recognize that there's all these other things happening. So he says, من أن الأخذ بالجد في الدين الذي يكون بحيث لو فجأ المرء الموت لم يجد مستزادا هو الحق الذي لا شك فيه وهو مذهب العارفين. So let us remember that this maqam is basically summed up in this simple statement. If a person was surprised by death, he would not find anything else concerning the truth that he would be wanting to increase to do. That what he's doing is exactly how what he would like to have been doing when death came to him. That's the maqam of these people. They're always in that maqam of they're always doing the most appropriate thing uh, uh, in the situation. And this is the madhab of the arifin. The arifin are the people of ma'rifah of Allah. These people are better than the scholars who know the outward rules of Islam. But it's well known that this really isn't in the capacity of the majority of people. Even the Arifun will slip. So this is just only the Prophets have this isma. And even the Prophet there are a few times when he left the Afdal for a Fadila. And Allah Actually, وَبَخَهُ فِي الْقُرْآنِ In the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminded, reprimanded him, عَبَسَهُ it's, it's a gentle reprimand of the Prophet when he frowned uh, to, the, to the person who wanted to hear from him and he went back to who he was talking to. He was in da'wah, but he was speaking to a man that really didn't, wasn't interested and there was a man that was passionately interested in. One was rich, the other was poor. And so the Prophet was doing a fadila. But, but his maqam is the maqam of, 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 of this highest maqam, right? Sabiqun bil khayrat. I mean, he's in the highest maqam, and for that reason, Allah said, no, this is what you should have been doing. You should have been speaking to, uh, the blind one. And then he says, فَدُونَ هَذَا الْمَقَامِ مَقَامٌ آخَرٌ وَهُوَ مَقَامُ الثَّانِي so the next maqam is the maqam of, uh, well, here's, a, here's an interesting, uh, he mentions that Imam al-Nawwi, wasaf al-Imam al-Nawwi al-Sufiyya fi adkarihi. So in, in the famous book al-Adkar, Imam al-Nawwi spoke about the Sufis. As-sadatu al-ajillatu min safwati hadhi al-ummah, ahli tarbiyat al-sadikin, so he said that they were the sada of this ummah. You know, they're the highest group. Al-Ajilla, uh, these majestic uh, uh, masters. Min safwati hadil ummah, from the best of this ummah. Ahli tarbiyat al-sadikin, they're the people that help people on the path to God by getting better. With ta'dib al-murabbin, and they discipline the souls of others uh, with their insight. Now this has to be understood in the context because this is a contested term. Sufism, tasawwuf, is a contested term. Sufism is not what you see in, in many countries in the Muslim world today. In fact, the Sufis would be the first people to reject them. Imam al-Ghazali in his book, At-Tabyeen, uh, he wrote a, a small treatise called a Tabyeen, uh, elucidating the fact that the vast majority of creation 
are complete, uh, is completely diluted. And when he gets to the last section, he says, the, Suf the Sufis. And he said, and, and how great is their delusion. He said, they're deluded in their dress. They're deluded in the way they talk. They're deluded in, the, in their thinking that they're the elite of God and the elect. So remember that many of the people that were part of this tradition, they were great critics. And they, they also, some of them say that the Sufiya and the Mutasawifa are different. Some use these, these terms technically. The Mutasawifa are the people that pretend to be Sufis. And in fact, they have a term in the, in the tradition called the Mutamawits. The Mutamawits is somebody who's like a, he's acting like a spiritual person because he thinks this is how a spiritual person should be. And so he's pretending to be dead. In other words, like his ego is dead and he has certain qualities. He's very hushed. He's very, you know, I'm very humble I am. Right? <laughs> like Uriah Heep in David Copperfield. I'm humble, I know me place in society. You know. But he's meanwhile like tricking and doing all these things to... So one of the Mauritanians said, عَاشَ بِهَا الْقَوْمُ بِخَيْرِ عِيشَ فَصُيَّرَتْ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ مَعِيشَ يُدْعَ الَّذِي يَمْشِ عَلَيْهِ سَالِكْ وَسَالِكُهَا الْيَوْمَ حِزْبٌ هَالِكْ That عَاشَ بِهَا الْقَوْمُ You know the قوم, these are the قوم, the Sufiya. They were called the Qawm. هُمَ الْقَوْمُ لَا يَشْقَ بِهِمْ جَلِيسُهُمْ They're the people because when the angels found the circle of dhikr, they said there was one person, he wasn't from them, but he was sitting with them. He said, and, and Allah says to the angels, هُمَ الْقَوْمُ لَا يَشْقَ بِهِمْ جَلِيسُهُمْ They're the people that even if you sit with them, you're in a good state. So he says that these are people that عَاشِ بِهَا الْقَوْمُ بِخَيْرِ عِيشَ فَصُيَّرَتْ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ but it became a means of getting livelihood after that. It became a means of, you know, selling talismans and doing these things like, and, and the pirsab who, uh, you know, uh, gets the poor people and convinces them, um, you know, that support me and all your ailments will go away and I'm going to get jinn out of you. Ah, I can see there's a jinni in you and just give me five minutes and I'll, you know, do some mumbo-jumbo, and it'll all go away. Uh, there's a lot of this in our ummah, right? Seriously. And so we can't be naive about these things. I mean, I, there was one person that you know, came to our area, and he made all these claims. That's what the first thing. If they make claims, big red flag. That's the first thing. If they tell you, like, somebody came to me and said, I've got this her person, our city, he doesn't pray Juma at the masjid. You know, he came from, I won't name the country, and he said, he says he prays uh, uh, Juma with the Prophet at his house, right? <laughs> you know, and a lot of people were like really taking this man seriously. And I said, I just said, you know, he's a kadab, just a liar, don't, don't believe him. The Prophet said, first of all, I don't think he'd be praying in England, Juma. <laughs> because most of the fuqaha say Juma doesn't even apply in foreign countries without an imam, because that's one of the conditions to establish Juma. I mean, Sheikh Sa'id Ramadan used to 
play, pray Jum'ah and then pray Dhuhr afterwards because they didn't consider the Jum'ah valid in Syria. People don't know that because there was no legitimate government by Sharia. Right? So, yeah, I just, anyway, I'll, I'll, and I don't have a problem telling people that. I don't believe that. You know, I had somebody come to me, you know, we do this dhikr on Thursdays, and this one guy, he's every day, he said the prophet's in the circle, and, and he comes to him in his dreams, and he tells him what dhikrs they should do. You know, and I, for me, those, that, that's just red flags all over the place. I don't want anything to do with those people. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. These are people that, you know, the, the, the real, the people that I knew never talked about any of those things. Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, somebody asked him, he actually once said, you know, that he didn't want to see the Prophet in a dream because he would be so ashamed. Like, who am I to see the Prophet <laughs> You know, that's the people I knew. See Fadul al-Huwari, Habib Ahmed Mashur al-Haddad. These people were people of no claims. No claims. So people that do that, that tell you, oh, I saw the Prophet and I saw this and that. Now, people can genuinely see the Prophet and we're going to get to that, inshallah, I think. And, 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 and there can be a bushra in that. But if you do see the Prophet Keep that to yourself. That's my advice. It's a very special thing and you should just keep it to yourself. If you want to share it with somebody very special that it has to do with them or you want to tell somebody that might know something about dream interpretation, that's another thing. But I would not put that on Facebook. <laughs> you know. And if you hear a sheikh saying, I saw the prophet and he said support CC or something like that, and then no, I'm sorry. You know. I mean, these are things that destroy our religion, you know, and make people really dislike the religion and turn away from the religion. It's charlatans, religious charlatans. And I'm not saying they're all charlatans, but they're certainly not practicing uh, the sunnah. You know, one of the books that I read when I was, when I was uh, starting out, I mean, I wasn't starting out, I was already pretty adept at reading Arabic, but I read... Um, Badi'u Zaman al-Hamadani. I was reading, I went through a period where I read the maqamat, I really liked them. Zamakhshari's were beautiful because they were all spiritual maqamat. But uh, Badi'u Zaman, really, I was conflicted reading it initially. And it took me a while to understand what he was doing because he wrote about a religious charlatan that used, to, he was very eloquent and he knew the book and the sunnah and he used to go to villages and he would trick people. And, and he would tell them things like, I saw the Prophet in a dream, and, and he told me to go to this village, and he said, I'm supposed to pray the, the, the rain prayer because you need rain, but he told me I have to do an extremely long sajda or it won't get answered. And so they're all like, Allahu Akbar. And he's very eloquent. He's got this brilliant eloquence. They're all, Allahu Akbar. And so they go out and they pray, and he goes into sajda, and then he gets up. They're all in such that he gets up and robs all the houses <laughs> and then he leaves. You know, and I thought, that's such a weird, why is he doing, this is, you know, 800 years ago. And I just, he's talking about characters. He's warning people about religious charlatanry. That there are mountebanks, there are these uh, people that are uh, dejajila you know, to use Imam Malik's term, because he was asked about him, and he said, how the Dajjalun minat Dajjajila. 
He's an imposter. A, uh, he was a scholarly imposter. He was pretending to be something he wasn't. And this has happened many times in our history that people have been fooled by these people. And so this is why it's very important to learn the religion for yourself so that you, you, you don't become victim to these people because many, we have so many people in our community that, become, that have been victims. And then what happens? They get scandalized when they find out the truth. Uh, the person ended up, you know, having sexual improprieties with people or something. This happens in our community. And then they have the, their, their, their loss of faith or they get confused or then they don't want to have anything to do with religion because this charlatan has given religion such a bad name. And, and this happens and they suffer from it. People are abused by religion and that's the worst form of abuse. I would rather have a mafiosa leader uh, and deal with him than deal with a religious charlatan. I really would. I would rather have that because he's just doing bad and everybody can see it's bad. But when you do bad in the name of good, you are a truly evil person. So now we're going we're gonna to go to the, the next maqam. Uh, maqam al-thamin. This is the eighth maqam. They get shorter, so don't worry. We'll get there. Maqam khawas al-ulama bi-ahkamillah. This is the maqam of the khawas. So the first one, these are ahl al-jid. These are people that, the arifun billah. Now you're in the, the so those were khasatul khasa. Now we're with the khasa. And, and, and these know the ahkam of Allah. Aqulu innuhu maqamu khawas al-ulama bi ahkamillah. And you kun al-mar'u sa'atan wa sa'atan. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi sa'atan wa sa'atan. And the hadith of Hanzala al-Usayyidi. It's a beautiful hadith. Where Abu Bakr sees Hanzala and he says, how are you? And he says, Nafaqa Hanzala. Hanzala is a munafiq. Abu Bakr shocked. How could you be a munafiq? He said, we're with the Prophet Our states are so exalted. He reminds us. We feel so good. And then we leave Asifna al-Ahal wal-Bay'at. We go and we get preoccupied with, with our families and our farms. And, and, and we lose that feeling that we're with. And Abu Bakr says, I feel the same way. Let's go to the Prophet. So they go and the Prophet sees them and he, and he says the same thing. And then the Prophet says, if you were, if you were like you were with me all the time, the angels would be shaking hands with you in the road. Right? Because that's what the Prophet was happening to him. <laughs> the angels were coming up and greeting him. He heard the stones from his irsahat, you know, the irhasat, which are the miracles before he became a prophet. He heard stones greeting him. So, so, uh, the Prophet said, you know, like, little by little, you know, a time for this, a time for that. So this is another maqam, right? A time for this and a time for that, right? He said it three times. So he's saying, this is the maqam of sa'atan wa sa'atan. Sa'atun fi muhimmin wa sa'atun fi aham. A sa'a in what's important, like your family and your farms and your livelihood. That's important. But more important is your ibadah and your relationship with Allah. So a time for this, a time for that. So, and this is the, this maqam. Yashhadu li hadha hadith hamdala. 
ومن ثم من دون هذا المقام مقام آخر دونه وهو المقام السابع. So now we go to the seventh. So that's the the eighth مقام. ساعة وساعة. A time for what's important and a time for what's more important. The first maqam, it's always the most important. They're always doing the most important thing. This maqam, they're either in something important or something more important. But uh, they, they, they could miss a more important thing by being preoccupied with an important thing. The next one, So this is the one who can't be in an important thing. So at least this sabi' is that he's in something important. وَقَدْ يُضَاهِ صَحْبَ هَذَا الْمَقَامَ مَقَامَ الْعَارِفِينَ بِحُسْنَ النِّيَّةِ And you can achieve the maqam of the arifin by having a good intention. So this maqam, you can actually get to that first maqam by being aware of the niyyah. وَهَكَذَا كَمَا قَالُهُ مَالِكٌ وَأَحْمَدِ بْنِ حَمَّدٍ وَشَافِعِ وَسُفْيَانِ وَالزُّهْرِ وَغَيْرُهُمْ فَقَدْ قَالَ مَالِكٌ لِيَبْنِ وَهْبٍ لَمَّا جَمْعَ كُتُبُهُ وَقَالَ وَقَامَ يَتَنَفَّلُ مَا الَّذِي قُمْتَ إِلَيْهِ بِأَفْضَلَ مِمَّا كُنْتَ فِيهِ إِذَا حَسُنَتَ النِّيَّةِ So Ibn Wahbin, the great muhaddith and faqih, was studying with Malik, and he has a, an opinion in the Maliki Madhab. He was studying with Malik, and he got up to pray nafila from the circle. And Malik said, what you're going to is not more important than what you're in if the niyyah is sound. Right? Don't think that ibad, this is ibadah if your intention is for Allah and you're studying this knowledge. وَنُقِلَ أَيْضًا عَنْ أَحْمَدْ إِبْنِ حَمْبَلْ أَنَّ رَجُلٌ قَالَ لَهُ هَذَا الْعِلْمُ فَمَتَ الْعَمَلُ فَقَالَ أَحْمَدْ أَلَسْنَا نَحْنُ فِي عَمَلٍ Imam Ahmed was asked, Okay, this is knowledge. When are we going to do? When are we going to act on it? He said, "This is action. Studying knowledge is action. Don't belittle what you're doing. Learning knowledge is action. This is from our amal." Malik said, "When you learn that speaking is from your action, you'll start speaking less." People say, "If he's calling people to Allah, it's not just speech; it's action." He's an amal. It's not, I mean, if he's a munafiq, that's another thing, like the Iraqi say, hachi fadi. You know, for him, but not for the people that are benefiting from him. Right? وَقَالَ شَافِعِي طَالَبَ الْعِلْمِ أَفْضَرُ مِنَ النَّافِلَةِ Imam Shafi'i said to seek knowledge is higher than doing extra acts. وَقَالَ سُفْيَانِ مَا أَعْلَمُ عَمَلًا أَفْضَلُ the great Sufyan said, I know of no action higher than seeking knowledge. This is something that I've tried to instill into the Zaytuna students. That you're not here to do inshad of qasa'id. You're not here to do maulid. Right? You're here to study. If you want to do extra acts, memorize Quran, get up at night, do tahajjud, those are the things the student, those are the awrad of the student of knowledge. If you want to be like the Amma, then go and do those other things. But that's actually the, the good Amma that are doing dhikr. Those are the Ubad and they're important people and you should never belittle them. And they may be better than the students of knowledge. So you should, but what the students of knowledge are doing is better than what they're doing. They might be better with Allah. Their maqam as an individual might be better than some student of knowledge because he's got kibr and arrogance in his heart because he's a student of knowledge. So he might be better, so you can't belittle them. Like Omar, when he went in and he found a man doing dhikr and he said, 
Man yakutuka. Who, who's, who's, uh, who's, uh, taking care of you? He said, my brother. He said, ahuka khayru minka. Your brother's better than you. He didn't say, get out of here and go earn your livelihood. What he was reminding him was, your brother who's out there working so that you can be in here doing dhikr, he gets all the reward of your dhikr as well as his, his work. So he's better than you. Don't get arrogant and think, oh, I'm in here doing dhikr and my brother's out there working to support me to do dhikr, so I'm obviously better than him. No, he's better than you. And this is why the shiuch have always honored wealthy people that support knowledge. It's not nifaq. It's not nifaq. Because those people, they're not doing what, if they're supporting a madrasa or if they're supporting a, a, a place where, where students of knowledge can learn or a, a hospital uh, with, that's giving free, like a, the Ummah Free Clinic or something like that that we have in America where people are treated for free. There's people supporting that. When they come, you have to treat them well. And it's not nifaq. It's recognizing these are the people that are enabling you to do the good that you're doing, and without them you couldn't do that good, and so show gratitude to them. That's not nifaq. It's nifaq if it's your personal, you're getting personal gain out of it or something like that, or tamalluq or something, but that, it's not nifaq to honor those people. وَنَقَلَ عِيَاضٌ عَنْ إِبْنِ أَخِي قال كنت مع عمي بالإسكندرية مرابطا فاجتمع علي الناس يسألونه فقال لي هذه برد عبادة وقلما أمهد لنفسي فيه مع شغل الناس فترك الجلوس لهم في الأوقات التي كان يجلس وأقبل على العبادة والحراسة فبعد يومين أتاه إنسان فأخبره أنه رأى نفسه في مشجد عظيم نحو المشجد الحرام والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فيه وأبو بكر عن يمينه وعمر عن شماله وأنت بين يديه وفي المسجد قناديل تزهر أحسن شيء وأشدها بياضا وإذا إذ, إذ خفت منها قنديل فانطفأ فقال لك رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يا عبد الله أوقده فأقدته ثم آخر كذلك ثم أقمنا مليا فرأيت القناديل كلها همت تطفى فقال أبو بكر يا رسول الله أما ترى هذه القناديل فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم هذا عمل عبد الله ابن وهب يريد يطفئها فبكى ابن وهب فقال له الرجل جئت لأبشرك ولو علمت أنه يغمك لما أتيك فقال له هو خير رؤياك هذه وعذت بها ظننت أن العبادة أفضل من نشر العلم ثم ترك كثيرا من عمره ورجع إلى الناس وحبس نفسه عليهم يقرأون عليه ويسألونه Amazing story Ibn Wahb a great really truly great faqih and scholar and muhaddith he's, he's from the Rijal of, uh, of Al-Bukhari Qabayyah the great muhaddith and Maliki jurist said that he, he relates this from uh, the cousin of Ibn Wahab. He said, I was uh, the son of the, the brother of Ibn uh, uh, Wahab. He said, I was with my uncle in Alexandria uh, doing ribat. The ribat, murabit, ribat was like a, it was almost like a monastery. It was a place where people would go sometimes for 40 days, tamam al-ribat, arba'una yawman, 
you know, there's a warada, hadal athar, that the, uh, you know how jama'at tabliq goes out for 40 days. They get it from this tradition. The ribat were places where they were fortresses in areas where enemies could attack the lands of Islam. And there was a great reward in being a guard in those places. But one of the things that they did in those places was a lot of ibadah. And so they were really almost like places of retreat where people would go and they would do military service, but at the same time they would be doing a lot of Qur'an, a lot of tahajjud. So it was a place of ibadah. The Murabitun were famous for this. They built the Murabitun and then they, uh, they conquered uh, Morocco and Andalusia. So he says, I was there in Ribat. And people used to come, they found out Ibn Wahbin was there, so they used to come to ask him questions. And he said to his, uh, his, his uh, nephew, he said, this is a place of devotion. And he said, I- I'm not able to prepare myself because I'm so preoccupied with these people. And so he stopped sitting for them. He used to sit with them to, to teach and give them lessons in the Ribat. He stopped sitting for them and he just started doing ibadah and hirasa, So doing devotion and then uh, watching at night, they would watch the borders. After two days, a man came to him and he said, I saw myself in a great masjid near the Masjid al-Haram. And the Prophet ﷺ was in it. And Abu Bakr was on his right and Umar was on his left. This is tafdil. So Abu Bakr is better than Umar. So right, left. And you were sitting in front of them. And in the masjid were candles, and they were, they were uh, emanating a brilliant light, incredibly white. And, but then they started dimming. One of the candles dimmed and then went out. Khafata. Qindirun fantafa'a. It started dimming and then it went out. Faqala laka Rasulullah, ya Abdullah. And then the Prophet said to you, he's talking to Ibn, Ibn Wahab, his name was Abdullah. Ya Abdullah, light it light this candle, and so you lit it, and then you lit another. And then we, were, we stayed there for a while, and then I saw the candles, all of them, it was as if they wanted to go out. And, and, I, and Abu Bakr said to the Prophet ﷺ, look at those candles. And the Prophet ﷺ said, this is the action of Abdullah ibn Wahab, he wants to put out the candles. Fabaka ibn Wahab, you know, he started crying. And the man said to him, I, I came, I thought I was going to make you happy. I came to give you good news. He said, if I knew this would depress you, I would have never come. He said, no, no, this is good. He said, your, this, this vision you had, I, I've, I've, I've learned from it. I've been exhorted by it. He said, I thought that my devotion was better than my teaching knowledge. And... So after that, he left a lot of devotion and he just started sitting with people and teaching. who forced himself to do that. And they would read with him and ask him questions. It's an amazing story. قَالَ الزُّهْرِ الْعَالَمِ إِذَا لَمْ يُخِلَّ بِوَاجِبٍ وَلَمْ يُقَصِّرْ فِي فَرْدٍ أَفْضَرُ مِنَ العابد. A scholar, if he does not, uh, if he does not stint uh, in some obligation, and he's not, uh, he doesn't, uh, shortchange any obligation. He's better than the devotee, the abid. You have alim and abid. The Prophet ﷺ said, the preference of one scholar over the abid is like the preference of me over the least of you. And he said, faqihun wahidun ashaddu ala shaytan min alfi abid. One faqih, 
is harder on shaitan than a thousand devotees. This is the maqam of knowledge in our ummah. وَسُئِلَ عِزُدِّينَ أَقِرَاءَةِ الْقُرَانَ فِي الْعِلْمِ Is it better to recite the Qur'an or to study knowledge? فَقَالَ مَعْرِفَةُ الْأَحْكَامِ الشَّرْعِيَّةِ أَفْضَلُ لِعُمُومِ الْحَاجَةِ إِلَيْهَا فِي الْفَتَاوِي وَالْأَقْضِيَةِ وَالْوِلَايَاتِ الْعَمَّةِ وَالْخَاصَةِ وَمَصْلَحَةُ الْقُرَانِ مَقْصُورَةٌ عَلَى الْقَارِ وَمَا عَمَّتْ مَصْلَحَتُهُ وَمَسَّتَ الضَّرُورَةُ وَالْحَاجَةَ إِلَيْهِ مَسَّتَ الضَّرُورَةُ وَالْحَاجَةُ إِلَيْهِ أَفْضَلُ مِمَّا كَانَتْ مَصْلَحَتُهُ مَقْصُورَةً عَلَى فَاعِلِهِ So he said, the rules of sharia, that knowing the rules of sharia is better because of the general need for people that they have it in, in terms of fatawa and judgments and rulings. Also, wilay al-amma, political power, and then wilay al-khasa. So wilay al-amma, those things that you're personally responsible for and those things that have the public trust. And he said, as for the benefit of the Qur'an, that it's maqsuratun ala al-qari, that it's limited to the one reciting it. So to learn knowledge in order to, to help people is better. وَمَا عَمَّتْ مَصْلَحَتُهُ So if the benefit is general and the darura uh, is touched by this thing and the need, then it's better than what is simply for the individual. And this is why we forget this. You know, a lot of people during Ramadan, the benefit of feeding poor people, the benefit of serving poor people, social services, much of our... And this is where the Christians often outdo do us, if we were honest with ourselves. You will find Christian doctors who could be very wealthy if they were in the United States. You'll find them in the worst places. I, I met a physician in Mali when I was probably 19. I met a physician in Mali who'd been there like 10 years. He's from Montana. He went through a period where they had to eat leaves because there was no food and he wanted to be with the people. And he was spreading the gospel amongst the Tuareg. He told me in 20 years he didn't get one conversion. <laughs> but I was really amazed at that man's devotion to do that. You know, it's amazing. You know, and we have all these doctors in the, in that they've got their giant houses and their cars, which is all fine and good, but serve people too. Take some time. Go do some service to people. You know, take two weeks out of the year. Take your vacation. You know, take your vacation. Because you're half the time they're in those offices letting people wait outside. I know that. Because <laughs> you wait so long. You have an appointment at three, you get in at four, right? I'm just kidding. I have lots of friends that are doctors. But, you know, take two weeks and go and treat people somewhere or do something for people. Or uh, get people to donate, um, you know, ambulances. Like, there should be a kickstart to get ambulances. You know, Mauritania does not have a, an emergency system for people. There's no 911 in Mauritania. If you have a car accident, they put you in the back of a truck or something or in a Jeep and they drive you to the hospital. There's no ambulance like that, you know. I mean, it's changing, but, you know, though, though, there's a lot of help that we can do for many parts of the Muslim world. Instead of allowing the Christians to take these uh, challenges, you know, and a lot of them are very sincere, you know, these Christian people. They're really, truly sincere people. They go and they serve poor people. 
Because that their book tells them that this is, you know, this is a blessed thing to sit, that Jesus sat amongst the poor, that he was with the wine-bibbers, the prostitutes, with he was helping the least of the community. And that's a high thing. You know, visiting prisoners is a great thing to do, helping people in, in, in the prisons, right? And, and, you know, they're so appreciative when you go. It's amazing. They're just so appreciative that somebody thought about them. And these are people that did something wrong. They made toba. You know, a lot of them, they made toba, and they need help. They're, they're, on the, they're on the mend, as the Brits say. You know, they're trying to get better. And uh, so, وَقَارَ فِي الْإِحْيَاءِ Imam Ghazali, he said, now this is really very, very important. لَمَّا ذَكَرَ أَنَّ الطَّرِيقِ لَلَّهِ عِمَارَةَ الْأَوْقَاتِ بِالْأَوْرَادِ قَالَ أَمَّا الْعَالَمَ الَّذِي يَنْتَفِعُ النَّاسِ بِعِلْمِهِ فِي فَتْوًا أَوْ تَدْرِيسٍ فترتيب أوراده تخالف أوراد العابد فإنه محتاج إلى المطالعة والإفادة فإن أمكنه أن يستغرق أوقاته في ذلك فهو أفضل ما يشغل به بعد المكتوبات ورواتبها and this, this is really important for students of knowledge to understand this Imam al-Ghazali said that the way to God is to fill your time with dhikr but as for the scholar, those who people benefit from their fatwa and their, and their tadris, their awrad are different. They should do that, they should do the, 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 the maktubat and then the awrad that go with that. There are certain things that you do like the, uh, what they call the baqiyat salihat after the prayer and things like that. Those are important. Do like Shaykh Abdullah al-Qadi. He does the Wird of Nawawi, which takes literally five minutes. And all his other is Quran and, and tafsir and fiqh and teaching. That, that's what he does. Just a really short dhikr. Uh, and so. Now, listen to what he says. That's better for him to, to, to fill his time with reading uh, other than the maktubat and the rawatib that go with them. Those dhikrs that go with the maktubat. وَكَذَارِكَ الْمُتَعَلَّمِ He said, and then he says, and like that, the student, الْإِشْتِغَارُ بِالتَّعَلُّمِ أَفْضَرُ مِنَ النَّوَافِرِ قَالَ فَحُكْمُهُ حُكْمُ الْعَالَمِ The student has the same category as the scholar in this situation. It's better for him to be studying. We need scholars. We need scholarship. I, we need more women scholars. I would love to have women scholars teach. It's hard to find traditionally trained uh, women scholars. You know, we need more women scholars. We had great female scholars in our history. Umhani, she, she knew the four medhebs. She had four sons, she taught each one a medheb. You know, uh, Imam al-Sakhawi said that he got the musalsal of Surah al-Saf from her. She read, that's the best of all the hadith of musalsal, where every alim does something in the hadith. She read Saf to him, and he said in a beautiful voice. Right? So, we need scholars. But it's a path. Scholarship is a path. Devotion is another path. Salah al-Nabi is a path. That's a path. And the Prophet actually said, if you did only Salah al-Nabi, that's a good thing. 
other than the maktubat. Just prayer on the Prophet. Leave everything else and just do prayer on the Prophet. Hence the Dalai al-Khirat in our Ummah, because that's a Sahih Hadith and the Prophet Aqarra, he said, if you make all of your extra acts prayer on me, it'll, it'll suffice you and take care of all your anxiety. All your needs will be taken care of. And, and I know people that do that. That's all they do. And they're amazing people filled with light and love. You know, really, there's amazing people that do that. And that's a path. That's not the path of scholarship. That's the path of ibadah. It's a good thing. If you're not inclined towards scholarship, that's the best path for you to take. If you fall asleep when you read, that's the best path. Some people do. They start reading and they, I, can't, I just, just puts me to sleep. They don't need sleeping pills. They just get a book. And, and the next thing they know, they're asleep. That, that's, those type of people, the best thing they can do is, imarat al-awqat bil-awrad, do dhikr, right? When you're awake, do dhikr. But for the students of knowledge, for the scholars, the best thing they can do is read and study and, and, and teach. وَقَدْ تَبَيَّنْ بِهَذَا أَنَّ الْعَالَمْ قَدْ يَكُونُ مِنَ السَّابِقِينَ بِنِسْبَةٍ وَمِنَ الْمُقْتَصِدِينَ بِنِسْبَةٍ وَمِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ لِأَنفُسِهِمْ بِنِسْبَةٍ فَالَّذِي هُوَ مِنَ السَّابِقِينَ فَكَمَا قَالُ هُوَ الَّذِي لَوْ قِيلَ لَهُ غَدًا تَمُوتْ وَلَمْ يَضَعَ الْكِتَابَ مِنْ يَدِهِ وَالَّذِي مِنَ الْمُقْتَصِدِينَ فَمَنْ جَعَلَ سَبَبُ الدُّنْيَا وَمِنْ قَائِلٍ يَقُولُ وَهُوَ مِنْ خَيْرِ الْأَسْبَابِ وَمِنْ قَائِلٍ يَقُولُ طَرَبَ الدُّنْيَا بِالدَّفْ وَالْمِزْمَارِ أَحَبُّ إِلَيْهِ مِنْ طَرْبِهِ بِالْعِلْمِ وَالدِّينِ So he says, this should make it clear that a scholar can be from that first group, a sabiqun bil khayrat, binisbatin, you know, it's all, this, this is relative to what he's doing. And he could be from the muqtasid, from these moderate ones, and he could also be from the valimiliyam those who oppress themselves, depending on what he's doing. So the sabiqun are the ones that if you said to them, um, you're gonna die tomorrow, and he's reading a book, he wouldn't change the book he's reading. So, if he's gonna die tomorrow and, and he's reading, uh, Brothers Karamazov, and he's, oh, put that away, enough of Dostoevsky, get the book of Allah out, then that's, that's, then he's, uh, he's not from that group. Or the Muqtasid, right? He could be from that, uh, because he could, that he could have, in, he's taking care of his asbab in the dunya, min qa'ilin yaquruhu min khayrul asbab, Right? Those who say that these are the, it's good, better to take the asbab, and then saying to seek dunya with a drum, a tar drum, and flutes, is, is, I would prefer that over seeking dunya with knowledge and, and religion. Yeah. Better you're a musician entertaining people than that you make, uh, you know, your, your knowledge a source of, uh, dunya. وحكى السيد مفتي تونس البرزلي قال قدم علينا الشيخ الدكالي وكان الشيخ صالحا يأكل من كد يمينه البلغة من القوت فأنكر أشياء منها منها لبس العمامة بغير حنك على ما يلبس يلبس يلبسها اليوم الفقهاء ومنها أخذ المراتب من الأوقاف على الإمامة وأظن وأظن والتدريس حتى أداه ذلك إلى عدم الصلاة خلف الأئمة الذين يصلون بالراتب فأوجع ذلك سيدنا الإمام meaning ابن عرفة فقلت له نجتمع به ونترك ونتكلم معه في هذه المسائل فمنعني فلما قدر وحججت اجتمعت به 
في زاوية في الإسكندرية وقلت له أنا أخذ المرتب على التدريس والإمامة وأعتقد أنه أحل لي من أخذه من بيت المال لأن بيت المال لعموم الناس والمرتب مختص بي من واضعه وهو إعانة على القول الصحيح لا على معنى الأجرة فلم يكن له جواب إلا أنه قال ما قلت ظاهر إلا أني لا أريد لك هذه سخسخة ففهمت من كلامه أنه كان زاهدا من نوازله أول النوازل وآخر So he says um, Dukali was a very pious zahid and when he came to Tunis uh, he, he, uh, he used to only eat from what he earned the bulga is kafaf it's just enough to get you by and he condemned certain things that he saw, like he didn't like the fact people wore the imama without the tahnik, right? Because the sunnah was to wear the, the hanak under your uh, chin. The Prophet put, like, like the Sokoto people do. You know, if you, if you look at uh, the Amir of Sokoto, you know, the, the African Amir, they wear, wear it like that. The Tuareg wear it like that. They sometimes veil, but the, the tahnik was the sunnah. And so, Early fuqaha didn't like it if they wore the turban. In fact, Uthman Danfodio, I mean, this is, take it for what it's worth. Uthman Danfodio said, this is imam to shayateen. <laughs> he, he said, it's imam of the, of the demons <laughs> that didn't, because they weren't following the sunnah. And he, what he meant was, this is what shaytan does. He changes things to, to get people out of the, the sunnah, right? <laughs> So, so he said, and this is the way a lot of fuqaha wear it today. And he also rejected taking a, uh, a, a muratab, a salary from the awqaf for being imam. And I think he also said, uh, for teaching. And, and that even led to him not praying behind the imams in Tunisia. Because he said they all get paid to pray. Why should I pray behind somebody getting paid to pray? This, pained our master Imam uh, Ibn Arafah, who was a great, great faqih, and certainly greater than uh, a Dukali in his knowledge. And so I said, we should meet with him and talk to him about these things. And so he said no. Uh, and then when I was able to go on Hajj, I met with him in a zawiyah in Eskandaria. And I said to him, I take a salary for teaching and for being an Imam. And I consider it that it's more halal for me than taking it from the Bayt al-Mal. Because there were awqaf for the imams. So he wasn't taking it from the general um, uh, the coffers of the state. He was taking it for awqaf made for the imam. So he, he said, I think that's better for me than taking it from the Bayt al-Mal. And he said that this was put for that purpose by the people that gave the endowment. And it helps to teach people, um, and it doesn't have the meaning of taking a ujra, like in the hadith, taking the Prophet ﷺ condemned taking some kind of money for teaching. Um, he said he didn't think that it went under that category, which the fuqaha don't. He didn't have an answer to that, except that he, he said, what you said is, is lahir, it's clear. He said, I just don't like this kind of, uh, like sophistry in your, you know, he, he still saw it as kind of like, mm, you're, you're just trying to get around something. Still not a good thing. And I understood from his words that he was a zahid. So, that's uh, an example 
of uh, of uh, the maqams, the different maqams. For him, he couldn't do it, Dukali. He had to earn from his own hand. He's not going to take from Bayt al-Man. A lot of male shiuch, mentor male students of sacred knowledge. A lot of senior prominent scholars are males, many of whom have expressed the need for more female scholars. But whenever I inquire about mentorship, many say they won't teach women. Uh, how can we get out of this catch-22 situation? Um, part of it, I think it's, we need older shiuch. You know, like, I'm really quite serious, you know. We need um, shiuch that... Um, it's a more of a father-daughter relationship because um, polarity, people can fall in love, you know, it happens. And, uh, and, it, and it can be a fitna for both the teacher and for the student. And that happens. And um, uh, especially with the younger uh, scholars, um, you know, many of them are charismatic and, um, you know, it can, it can be a fitna. I'm not... I'm be, talking quite realistically, and this has happened uh, in many occasions. Um, and, and it's not, it's just, these are normal, this is reality. Look, in, in classical Freudian uh, psychiatry, it's actually considered a part of the process for the, the patient to fall in love with the psychiatrist. And it's very sick, but that, that's literally, because it happens when you, when you have a close relationship with somebody and they're guiding you, you know, the hearts are inclined towards those who do good to them. So they can actually fall in love. It's, this is realistic. You know, it, it happens. And so that's one of the things. Some of these, uh, you know, teachers are just trying to guard themselves. Because they're human. They could be attracted to, if they have a really brilliant student, uh, there can be a lot of compatibility. Uh, they feel, you know, uh, attracted. That happens. It's just human nature. And Islam is very realistic about these things. Um, and, and so even in tasawwuf, you know, young shiuch were never the norm in tasawwuf. It's, it's very, very tricky to have young uh, shiuch. You know, traditionally, they were older. Their nafs, Ibn al-Munkadir said it took him 50 years to get his nafs under control. You know, so to be guiding other people and helping other people, and you're still struggling with your nafs, it's, that's a little tricky. So it's a problem. Um, it's, it is a, t a type of catch-22 situation. Um, the, you know, I think there, there are ways around. We've, we've even, I mean, at, at the college, this is one of the things we're struggling with. I know Dr. Winter's struggling with it because when you put males and females together, um, they, they also, the students tend to fall in love and things happen. and It's normal. This is part of human nature. If you read the early period when they started introducing co-ed education in America, which is the first place that did it. I mean, they never had co-education anywhere. All the, the teachers said, this is insane. You can't put young men and women together to study and not think they're going to be distracted. You know, so that's just, this is human nature. Islam is a very practical, realistic religion. So I know it's a problem, and I know it's frustrating for the women because they, the Prophet gave one day out of the week just for the women, and that was with the understanding that the men were going home and teaching the women, but they came and complained. They said, no, we don't want to hear it from our husbands. We want to hear it directly. He gave them a day out of the week just for them. And so that is a sunnah. 
to teach the women, uh, and, it, and it's important. Um, so that's undeniable. But we have to work out ways in which we can protect the hearts of, uh, of both sides of the... Because most of these teachers are married. You know, they have wives, and their wives have rights as well, you know. Um, so because some of the wives have suffered because of these situations. So these, these are things that people have to think about, you know. Um, given the current situation in the world, where would you suggest, recommend as an authentic, safe place for females to seek traditional Islamic knowledge and scholarship? Can you suggest ways in which we can make a good start on this path from our countries of residence in the West? Um, you know, there, it, there are certain things. We have very good teachers of Tajweed that are women. And it's much better for you to learn the Quran from women. Because Tajweed is actually a kind of intimate thing. Because you have to you have to look at the lips and make sure they're I mean they're like the Ishmam is is it's something seen. Um, and and so th those type things uh, are very and then Arabic, we have a lot of women that know Arabic to a very good level. So the foundational knowledges are definitely to be done. When you get into uh, hadith um, fiqh and things like that, then there are less, certainly. This was not always the case in our autobiographical literature. On average, there were about 10 to 15 percent of the notable scholars of any given period of time were women. And we're talking not about just scholars, we're talking about the a'yan, the notable scholars in Islamic tradition. Ibn Sa'd, if you read his tabaqat, uh, the women uh, are very, very well placed in that early period. Many great uh, female scholars. Women did not tend to write, which is why we don't have a lot of books from the women. There are some books, but they did not tend to write, um, partially because there were opinions that women, women should be taught to read and not to write. Um, and, and the reason for that was like what we call texting today. Pre-modern texting existed, where you wrote notes and could turn them. And so they saw it as a source of fitna. My own teacher, Marabtar Had, said in the early period he did not teach his wife to write because of that, and later he realized that it, was, it wasn't a correct fatwa. Um, but his wife n never learned how to write very well. Uh, but she was a scholar in her own right. Maryam was amazing. She had a phenomenal memory. She memorized an incredible amount of poetry. Uh, she knew the Qur'an by heart. She knew uh, fiqh very well. Um, amazing, amazing scholar. So he, uh, she didn't teach, but she sat listening for 60 years to her husband teach, and she had a photographic memory, as far as I can tell. You know, I, I real, when I when I first came uh, there, she asked me all my family's name. So she's like my mother. I said Elizabeth, and she's like Elizabeth. I said, yeah, and my father David, David, and then my my sisters. She knew, I have six brothers and sisters. She knew all their names. She asked me for all their names. After I left, when I came, I came back 10 years later. And the first thing she said to me after the just greeting, she said, Kifa Elizabeth, Kifa David, Kifa. And she started asking me. I totally broke down. Just, you know, that humanity, it's just so amazing. But I realized later that she probably was making dua for them. And that's how she retained their, their names, Wallahu Alam, because they were foreign names to her. But um, so there's a lot of things that you can learn with resources in your own communities, and, and that's the best. Um, I think um, Skype also is a possibility. Um, 
in, in this time. For it's it's a difficult for uh, students. I think um, just because of time factors, a lot of people are very very extremely busy. I know a lot of the people. I mean, I'm constantly at a loss for time, um, just trying to find more time uh, for different things because I'm doing a lot of things. I mean, Zaytuna alone is like a full-time job, and I've got other things besides that. And I'm pretty much every day, even while I'm here, I'm having to deal with a lot of Zaytuna issues because the catalog's being written right now, and you know, I get weekly reports, and um, I'm in contact with, with uh, my assistant there, you know, quite often. So it's just time is, is, a, is a problem. Um, but yeah, we, we, need, we need to do that. Right now, the Muslim world's in a lot of turmoil. ISAR is an excellent option for women that have a degree um, to study. They have a women's program. And Dr. Rajab Shenturk, to me, is really one of the brilliant, innovative, and not not mubtidi'ah, but mubdi'ah, you know, like a creative person, innovative, not, not in a negative way. Because you have mubdi'ah and you have mubtidi'ah, you know, and one's negative, the other's positive. But he's a very, very creative thinker. Uh, he's, he's rooted in the Islamic tradition. He himself is a, uh, a scholar of the Islamic tradition. He also has a PhD from Columbia University in sociology, so he's very familiar with modern world. And he's doing very similar things that we're trying to do at Zaytuna, which is bridging these two worlds, trying to make tradition rele relevant in the modern times, how we grapple with the contradictions of our time, um, renewing and, and trying to understand tradition in light of the modern world with all its complexities. So he's really good. We had one of our students was there. Um, she was studying uh, Turkish here. Um, and uh, Turkish is, is a barrier. It's, it's, uh, you can learn it, because I've met people that have learned it, but there's a character on the YouTube that speaks 20 languages, and he's pretty fluent in them. Um, Freydun and I, Freydun said his daddy was really good, and, and uh, his Arabic was, I thought, very good. He was a young Jewish kid. There's a whole community of polyglots. But when he got to Turkish, out of the 20 languages he spoke, when he got to Turkish, he said, now here's a really hard language. Mm -hmm. It was the only one he said that. So I was like, somebody told me it was like doing math in your head. Um, but anyway, it can be learned. Um, the great language after Arabic, in all honesty, is Persian. Uh, it is a truly great language, worthy of uh, being learned uh, after Arabic. Um, and I think Urdu is also another great language of the Islamic tradition. Um, and then there are some languages that are worth knowing. Uh, Mandarin Chinese, I would really encourage people, um, if they're young, to learn Mandarin Chinese because it's going to help when they finally do invade. You can start saying, <laughs> you know, um, don't shoot in Mandarin, you know. Um, hopefully they're not Cantonese speakers, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, languages are good to learn. Malay is a good Muslim language, although most Malays, other than the Orang Asli, speak um, English now. But uh, Malay is, is a, a, a really sweet language, and I think um, it's not that difficult to learn, according to a lot of people that I know who've learned it.
Um, somebody asked why the order of Islam, uh, Iman, and Ihsan. That comes from the Hadith of Jibreel. Islam is used to mean many different things. It's the Deen of Allah with a capital I, uh, Islam, which includes Islam, Iman, Ihsan. So it's used as a generic term, and under that are those three rubrics. And then it's also used to mean specifically the, the five pillars and then fiqh that relates to that. Iman is used uh, to refer to the actual, the belief, the tasdiq, the assertion in one's heart that Allah is real, the Prophet's real, that Jannah and the fire are real, that there's a day of judgment, that we believe in angels, the books, we believe in the qadr, khayrihi wa sharrihi, hulwihi wa murrihi. That's Iman. And then you have Aqidah that also goes under Iman, which is the dogmatic theology. It's learning the rules of theology, dogma, um, in the positive term. I'm not using that negatively. It's used in the modern world very negatively. That's just dogma. But it's, a, it's actually a, traditionally, it's, it's, a, it's a doxa. You know, it's belief, dogma. It's what you believe. It's the articulation of what you believe. And dogmatic theology is important. It's, it's not that difficult to learn basic dogmatic theology. To get into what's called speculative theology uh, takes a long time. And some people have to do that. That's a fard kifaya. It's not a fard ain. Dogmatic theology is fard ain. Speculative theology, or what's sometimes referred to as natural theology, which is rational theology, it, it's, it's a type of metaphysical uh, theology in which you're able through it to refute um, obfuscations to refute atheists, uh, to refute their arguments. And right now, the best people at it, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately for them, but unfortunately for us, because we used to be the best at this, and much of, of the Catholic tradition um, benefited greatly from our great theologians. But the Catholics are still quite formidable at uh, speculative theology. And, and I think Muslims actually could... Could, I'm talking about the Muslim scholars, could benefit from modern Catholic uh, theology because they're writing some of the best refutations of, uh, of the new atheism. Um, they're also, some of them are formidable in physics. They, they know a lot of the modern sciences, and yet they're also well-versed. Uh, somebody like... Um, Quantum Enigma. Wolfgang Smith. Somebody like Wolfgang Smith is a very, very formidable intellect um, because he's an acknowledged scientist, but he's also a brilliant metaphysician. And so he... he and this is why, you know, atheists are very glib and, 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 and their attitudes are very facile and, and, and really not strong. They... You know, a, a friend of mine was, he lived in England, he died, Allah yarhamu, but he said that, um, you know, he had a neighbor who was a, um, they, they, he was cutting the hedges and his neighbor, they started talking. And he asked him what he did, he said he was a theologian. And his neighbor said, mm, I don't believe in God. And he said, hmm, have you read Augustine? He said, no. He said, have you read St. Thomas Aquinas on God? He said, no. He said, have you ever read St. Gregory? No. He said, have you ever read Ghazali, Abu Hamid? He said, no. You know, and he kept asking him these, read Wolfgang Smith? No. He said, sir, you're not an atheist, you're an ignoramus. <laughs>
You know, it's interesting, somebody who, very glib, I think, in his attitude is Bill Maher, um, who hates religion. And, you know, he belittles religious people. They're all stupid. He did this film called Religious, you know, making these people look really dumb. And, and, and his attitude is you can't be intelligent and be a believer. Um, and first of all, the arrogance is palpable. But the, the reality of it is, is that Religion has always, the great religions have always been profoundly intellectual. Islam is a profoundly intellectual tradition. Um, a lot of the, the metaphysics of, of the great Abrahamic faith has been undermined because of modern philosophy. But it's not to say that it diminishes the truth of those, uh, those other perspectives. It's simply materialism and nominalism have become the dominant currency intellectually on the planet. And so if you're a metaphys metaphysical essentialist coming out of that tradition, um, it's not taken seriously. So people don't read the great metaphysicians anymore. But those who do very often become believers. And a great example of that is one of my teachers uh, who was a friend of my father's, and you know, I, I had the good fortune of knowing him, uh, was Mortimer Adler. And Adler was an atheist um, who, through falling into Aquinas as a philosopher, could never get out, and in the end converted as a Jew, a secular Jew, converted to Catholicism in his 80s. He grappled with Aquinas for 50 years. Uh, another example is C.S. Lewis, the famous uh, Christian apologists. A lot of people don't know that C.S. Lewis was an atheist that thought that believing in God was just a uh, a pre-modern fallacy until he met G.K. Chesterton, who was the most brilliant human being he'd ever met. And, and he said it forced him to reassess his beliefs because he said, if a man that intelligent could believe in God, there must be something here that I'm missing. And that got him into studying theology and ended up, uh, he became one of the great Christian apologists of the, of the 20th century, whose books are incredibly um, rich. So unfortunately, our tradition has fallen on hard times, but we're trying to do our best. I mean, we're a pretty pathetic, pale imitation of the people that went before us, but um, we're trying to do our best. And maybe Allah will, will inspire some people that, normally might have gone into engineering and become brilliant engineers or medicine and become brilliant doctors to reconsider studying um, theology and jurisprudence. We need legal minds. You know, we need... The Americans still have some great legal minds in, in their legal tradition, but uh, it's, it's very hard to find them in the Muslim world. Um, most of our scholars... Uh, come out of mediocre training now. So this is a crisis that's, that's happened that we need to remedy. Uh, there's a lot of ignorance. Anyway, enough said.